0: Hey, I'm Michael Dorinda.
1: And I'm Jake Bennett.
0: And welcome to episode 71 of the North Meet South Web Podcast.
1: Yes, episode 71. Here we go. And good to be back. I was not here for the Laravel News Podcast last week. Uh, it has been a you bit of a crazy week. Uh, I will bring you up to date real fast. So my daughter had a liver transplant when she was one and a half years old. Went really well. She has been doing great for a long time, one tiny little episode of stuff in between then and now. And, um, she had another little episode. Um, uh, the word they would use is rejection. It basically just means that the body's irritated, that there's another organ in there that's not from it. And so, um, the doctors were treating that this week and she was over at the hospital for seven days and that gets old really quick even though it's an awesome hospital that she's able to go to it's four and a half hours from here so my wife and her were over there and so we were just crazy back and forth with kids between cincinnati and bloomington and trying to figure everything out Um, thankfully she was able to come home this week which it was not looking like that was going to be the case it was looking very much like she was going to have to stay for another three to seven days and she was able to come back home so we are very very thankful for that so um anyway that was the reason i was not around but i am really glad to be back and super thankful to be home so it's been uh it's been a little bit of a roller coaster but we're back we are back
0: yeah it's good and everything's ticking along now okay she's the the body is doing what it's supposed to do and the medication or the treatment and all that has has gone well for her
1: yeah they've uh they've added a couple new medications so which is actually sort of sucky but I mean, it's better than the alternative, uh, which is that her body's yeah. still not happy with the liver. So, you know, I'll take some medications that will help her body do what she needs to do over uh, the alternative. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, she's she's doing good. She's getting used to the new medicines. They taste like garbage, apparently. So tomorrow, I'm actually going to try the ones that she's taking to see how bad they yeah. are. <laughs> just I want to see. I just want to have like a baseline measure of like, okay, what's what's she actually experiencing here? So I'm gonna take a little bit of it, see what it tastes like, and mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. yeah. We'll see how that goes. I'll update you, on the next time we talk, yeah,
0: <laughs> you know, we we did the same with Eli. He when we went and saw the pediatrician last October, I think November. He, you know, we had some blood tests done, and and he's a little bit iron deficient, so he's on the older iron supplements. Like this is liquid thing, and it is very very unpleasant to taste. So, um, we. It's just like you know, if you ever cut yourself on the finger or whatever, and you yeah, stick yeah, yeah. it in your mouth, and you and it's like that, but worse, right? So, like
1: times ten, yeah, um,
0: yeah. But he, you know, he he took it really well. We're due to go and see the the pediatrician again. I think at the end of this month or, or or next month, maybe for his two year. He won't be two until June, but his two year checkup just sure. to see how he's tracking because he was preemie. They they tend to want to see them sort of more often and for a little bit longer. Right, right. But I think mm-hmm. after this one, we don't have to see him again until he's like three or four. So you know it's not too bad. Right. It's always uh it's expensive when you go and see the pediatrician though.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. I don't I actually don't know. I mean, so I don't know how that works. I'm I'm curious. And I promise people will get to the uh the actual show side of things, but I am curious about this, the whole healthcare idea. Like so How does Mm -hmm. that work for you? How expensive is it? I know you've talked about before, like you guys have private healthcare in addition to the public Mm -hmm. healthcare. Yeah. So do you guys do like private provider? Do you have a a doctor that you go to that's not like in your, like that's not provided for everybody?
0: So with the the pediatrician, essentially, as far as I understand it, pretty much all pediatric treatment especially like when we were in NICU and all that, when Eli was born, we didn't pay anything for that. Um, and we paid, we were out of pocket for the pediatrician themselves, but then we got like 85% of that back nice. as rebates wow, that's through, awesome. through um, you know, the public health stuff. Sure. So, and and I think we paid, it was like $300 or something Wow! for Re to, to stay in the hospital with Eli you know, because she was cesarean, they typically want to hold on to them for five to seven days just to make sure they're recovering and they're coping with bucks. the post abdominal. Yeah, so we pay three hundred dollars excess, and that covers us for hospital visits for twelve months. So it's just that that once off for twelve months that you pay three hundred dollars, and then I think we paid eight hundred something dollars for the anaesthetist. Um. So yeah, eleven hundred dollars. She was in hospital for three days, and we had a baby three weeks later at home. So. I and mean, then do Our you healthcare have to, is pretty
1: good. Do you also pay for private healthcare as well? Do you have like a yeah. you pay each month for so we, private healthcare as yeah, well? Yeah,
0: we pay something like four hundred dollars a month okay. for private health. And that covers the three of us. And that that covers, you know, dental is pretty much covered for nice. yeah, Eli. Sure. Uh we if if we go, you know, in network, it costs nothing to go and see a dentist. You get uh optometry, you can get, you know, glasses and things like that for nothing. Um, once a year or whatever it is. um, is. I've been going to see the physio for my knee for, you know, the last year and a bit, and that essentially cost me $20 a visit. Um, Not bad, yeah. Um, un- until I, but you get $300 or $500 or whatever it is per year. You know, you get different buckets for different types of treatment. And then once that that's exhausted, you then pay whatever the full price is. But, you know, that covers you for – I think I saw the physio probably – 10 or 12 times before I ran out of, and that's per person. So Rego's to see the physio. That doesn't affect right, right. my my bucket. So that's pretty good. You know, people say, um, one of the people that I work with, they're like, should I get health insurance? And we're like, well, yeah, but he goes, but I'm healthy. I don't need it. And then like a week later, he says, I need to go and get my wisdom teeth out. i'm like you did get health insurance when we talked about it like five months he's like no i didn't need it i'm like okay he's like can i get it now i'm like yeah and then you have to wait like 12 months before you can actually use it for your wisdom teeth he's like is it expensive i'm like depending on what they have to do it could be day surgery in which case yeah it's expensive
1: right exactly yep yep wisdom teeth can be pricey
0: yeah it's, um, it's one of those things, you know, insurance is one of those things. And you know, because you work in insurance.
1: Yep. Bro, it's, okay. Uh,
0: it's one of those things that you don't need it until you do. And I'd rather have it and not need it than not have it.
1: Yeah. It's one of those things you purchase hoping to never have to use. But when you do, it's it's yeah. nice. So, for instance, we got in a car wreck a couple of weeks ago. The girl pulled out right This is news us. to me. Bam. Yeah. Okay. So, we were all in the car. All of the kids and the wife were all in the car together. That's the horror scenario right there. Right. And so we're all driving and heading southbound. A girl turns right in front of us, like turning left, like right in front of us. Can't. No way we can stop. I slam on the Mm. brakes and go right T-boner right in the passenger side, like center line. Smashed both her doors in. Nobody can get out of that side of the car. We pull Uh. off to the side. A guy in a truck. It pulls in behind us goes to us hey is everybody okay yeah we're we're okay i think everybody's okay everybody's buckled thank god everybody's in car seats everybody's you know whatever mm-hmm. people in front of us i get out of my vehicle and walk up there with this guy who had stopped as well and two guys are getting out of this car the girl who's the driver is still in the car two guys get out of the car and leave and the the guy is like who are they like where are they going she's like i i don't know He's like, well, I'm an off-duty police officer. Do they have warrants out for their arrest or anything? And she's like, um, <laughs> I don't know. And he's like, okay, well, we're going to get a police report. I'm going to call some people. They're going to be over here in just a minute. They need to be back here. Five police yeah. cars roll up. Five police cars. They're like going down, up and down the street with lights. Like, which way did they go? It was crazy. Wow. That's <laughs> it crazy. Was crazy. So she, I'm like, oh boy, I hope she has insurance. She has paperwork. We're all good. Awesome start getting my vehicle repaired. Her insurance company calls me and says, yeah, it's under investigation. Come to find out she doesn't have insurance. So I'm out uh, my deductible, which whatever it sucks. It's like, it's, it'll end up being like about 600, 700 bucks to get my car repaired yeah. and all this stuff after my yeah. insurance covers it. But,
0: uh, and then your insurance goes up next year.
1: Yeah, exactly. But that's the exact yeah. scenario that my office handles. So we end yeah. up pursuing that responsible party that didn't have insurance. So, so, mm-hmm. Oh my word! Sorry, people who are listening. This is like all these personal. <laughs> this is like our catch-up time. We don't get to talk about very it. often, so
0: look. Adam's about to go on going down to Florida know, for a week right? of vacation. He can just suck it up. <laughs> um, be fine. Yeah, my uh, my brother was um, in an accident similar to that, uh, probably about a month ago now, where he was going. He was going straight through a green light. And this car was coming in the opposite direction to turn right. So, similar situation to you, right? Um, but obviously, the other way around because we drive on the right side of the road and you don't. And, oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was going straight and she, like, turned and, like, just turned in to hit the side of his car. So, that was a write-off for him. He he cracked his hip and was, like, on crutches oh for gosh. a couple of weeks because... There's not really anything they can do about it. They can't cast it or anything. We were kind of hoping that he'd be in one of those, you know, yeah, those like diapers. type things. Yep, exactly, but, but, but no, nothing like that. But That's yeah, hilarious. Just, just on that like no insurance thing. I, I, I can't believe it happened the way it did. But I was, I was at work. It was a, it was a red light. I was turning right, and the car in front of me puts their like reverse lights on, and I'm like, what are they doing? And then they start reversing and they were you know i was like a car and a half length behind them so i'm like they'll see me and they'll stop and then they just kept coming and eventually i just like ram on the the um the horn now they just just back straight into me at a at a red light like as oh i was stopped gosh. at the intersection and this was around the corner from work like the last intersection around the corner so we go around onto the side stream we pull over and and the front of my car is like crumpled in because that's how they're made these days to just disintegrate when, when you breathe on them. And uh, <laughs> his car was a bit older and um, so it, it didn't quite do as well um, in terms of like it didn't have as much damage. So, you know, we exchanged details. We, we sent it off to the insurance and, um, you know, like probably about two months ago I had this accident this time last year So a year ago and probably about three months ago, I got a letter from lawyers and they're like, oh, if you get contacted by this person that you're in an accident with like a year ago, don't respond to them, refer them to the law firm because apparently this person who had insurance through the same company that I was insured with just like didn't pay or whatever. Yeah,
1: exactly. That's how it works. Yeah. They get the paperwork (sighs) and then they stop paying. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, anyway.
0: Let's let's move on to things about computers, I suppose. Let us.
1: Okay, so I had a couple of things here. So one of the items that I actually wanted to talk about, which w- it might be interesting to kind of dive into on the show before we get into any of our other than Ping Me or State Machines, which I always end up, to, you know, getting to. Um, it
0: devolves into it, State Machines. It devolves machines. into State
1: Machines. Okay, so this was an interesting idea or interesting sort of something that came up this week while I was at work. So... Here's the situation. Um, so let's just call it a budgeting app for just to keep things simple. All right. So we have a, um, each month can be set up and then in each month you have different funds that can be set up. And then for each fund, you can actually have like transactions that occur for within that fund. Okay. So we'll just call it really easy. Like that's kind of what we've got. So we've got top level month, next level fund, next level transaction. Okay. So the rule is that. You cannot add a transaction to a fund that is already completely drawn, right? You can't overdraw a fund. Yeah. Okay. That's mm-hmm. one rule. The other rule is that you can add a transaction to a fund that belongs to a month that is closed. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So if a month has been yeah. closed, like if you've said like, I'm done with this month, you cannot add a transaction to a fund that belongs to that month. Okay. So two mm-hmm. easy rules. No big deal right okay the question is where do you do the validation for this logic okay so you could do it in the controller and you could at the point at which um you get to this spot you could i mean there's a number of different ways you could handle that particular piece right so you could say hey, there's a middleware on this that says if you're trying to get to a fund that belongs to a month that's closed, just say, nope, you can't get to a transaction create page that belongs to a fund that belongs to a month that is closed. You can't do that, right? Mm -hmm. So you could stop it there Mm -hmm. and you could say, okay, you cannot access that, that transaction create page. That works, that's fine. Or in the case that you let them access that transaction create page, when they go to create the transaction, you could, if within the controller or within a form request, you could at that point say, are they trying to add a transaction to a month that is closed? And if it is, then stop it, right? So you could do it in the validation layer. Or Mm -hmm. here's the other thing. If you are going to interact with this model anywhere outside of that HTTP layer, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're going to interact with it through the console, or if you're going to be interacting with it like intermodel sort of idea, right? So if I'm yeah. going to somehow going to be handling creating a transaction anywhere else, I also want this business logic to be there, right? I do not want you to be able to overdraw a fund, uh, and I don't want you to be able to add a transaction to a fund that belongs to a month that's closed. So where do you do that? At which layer do you handle the business logic? Now, my original thought was I would always handle this in a validation layer. Like for me, simple, like Mm -hmm. form request, I'm always going to throw it in there. Once it's done, it's done. And I don't worry about it anymore. That was my first thought process. Uh, But when I saw that, like my other developer actually put it in the model itself, my first inclination was like, no, 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 that's wrong. Don't put it in there. Mm. Don't put it in there. You mm. should put it in the form request, whatever. But then I started thinking about some of these other things and it got really muddy. So I don't yeah. even know that I necessarily have a great answer for it yet. And this has kind of caused me to call into question some other, I don't know, like where? how am I using this in other places? Like what is responsible for validating that the user has valid input And what is responsible for data integrity? Like, are those separate layers? Are those the same layer? Where do we handle those business rules that must be adhered to? Right. So, I'm Mm. interested in hearing your thoughts on that. I know this is like, I literally gave you like 30 seconds to think about this so far. Um, Yeah. But, like, what are your thoughts on that? So,
0: assuming you're going to allow the user to view the create transaction page
1: which is mistake one in my opinion like i don't
0: yes but assuming you do let them do that i would still be putting the validation in the form request to prevent them from submitting it and even if you don't allow them to view the create transaction page i would still be putting the validation in the controller to prevent them from doing that to stop those people that are trying to circumvent the forms to post directly, whatever. Sure, sure, sure. Right, yeah. So I would still stop them from accessing it and I would still stop them from carrying out that action assuming they figure out that they can still post directly to an endpoint. Now, CSRF protection on your forms will give you some protection there. In terms of doing validation in the model... Classically, you wouldn't do it if you're going to adhere to the solid principles, the model, or even if you're just adhering to an MVC architecture, you probably wouldn't put that kind of functionality in the model. Um, but then you you still probably want some way of having like just a standalone validation object. Something that you could just be like validate whatever is happening that you could pass some inputs into it um, within the context of a model. I think that's janky. And I think this is getting into that um, duplication is better than the wrong abstraction territory. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Maybe sure. you just, maybe you just, you know, it's, it's two places or three places. Maybe it's okay to just have the validation in the middleware and then have the validation in the form request. And then, I mean, it depends on how you're accessing the model method. Um, would you wrap the validation around access to that? Um, if you're not using a controller to get to it, what is, what is the authorization mechanism? And that's, that's where I'm kind of a bit fuzzy on it. There's, I'm sure I've seen a talk. It may have even been David that when he spoke at Laracon AU that he spoke about this, having like standalone validation things mm-hmm. or or shoving things through a pipeline yeah sure you could you could probably do you know pass it through a pipeline and it, and and one of those pipeline steps is to validate what you're about to do to that model and then have that bail out of the process maybe that's a good way of doing it um yeah it's uh without without seeing some code and without having a a deeper think about it i don't yeah. have
1: an immediate solution no, that's kind of where I, I landed too. I'm like, man, you know, I don't really know that I have a great reason for saying, no, you can't put this in there, um, except for to say, so there was a couple of things that came to mind. Um, number one, I thought it was interesting because when I'm going to do this, I can see the business logic in that location, right? I can see it right there. Right? It's like add transaction. So like fund has like add transaction, right? And so when you call fund add transaction, that's where it's actually doing that validation piece. So I can look and see when I'm adding a transaction, then there we go. But Mm -hmm. this doesn't stop anybody from saying fund transactions, create or save, right? You know what I'm saying? Just getting Mm -hmm. around it by basically using Laravel's default relationships. Like it doesn't stop anybody from doing that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. This only works if you're using funds ad transaction. Yeah. So, I mean, there's still ways around it is the problem. You know what I'm saying?
0: But that's then up to the developer. The developer would have to put those workarounds in there. And that would have to go through code review and pass or they and and all that kind of stuff. Or they would have
1: to not realize that ad transaction is there. So, what I'm saying is I think this is a false protection. I don't really think that Mm. this is the solution. This is the one the only way that you could you know, protect yourself and have data integrity here. I think at the end of the day, tests are the kind of the hero. I think that the other thing that it comes down to is you need to have good documentation around this business logic and these business rules so that the next developer mm-hmm. who's coming behind you can see, oh, oh, I see like, so two things for me, tests and hopefully your tests are good documentation. So you can see when you're adding a transaction, you can see in your tests, can I add a transaction to a month that is closed? Also, can I add a transaction that will exceed the balance of a fund, right? Hopefully, like in your transaction tests, you can see that, right? And if you can see that, then you have documentation that acts as your documentation to let the next developer know you can't do that. This is something you can't do, right? Now, how you do that, there's no... I mean, there's no limit to the number of ways you could do that. I mean, there, obviously there actually is, but there is a ton of different ways you could you could handle that, right? So yeah. whether you handle it with a form request uh, or whether you handle it with in the model or whatever, um, you should have a test that you're writing when you're writing the code uh, to validate that it actually is going to work. And in the thing, yeah. the thing that I think I have the issue with right now is this is not being used anywhere yet right Mm -hmm. everything up to this point all of our tests would point to being validated by the form request itself this is just sort of a in case in the future maybe we end up having this and that to me i think is what feels a little bit gross is Mm -hmm. i i hate uh these sort of when you do this what ends up happening is you end up with these checks all the way through your code base all over the place because it's like, well, in case I didn't check it, I'm going to check it one more time. And then if I maybe got to this layer somehow and I, I didn't mm-hmm. check it yet, let me check it again. And so what you end up with is every single method that's interacting with this thing. You have these conditional checks and you have these guards yeah. and these throwing exceptions or abort or whatever, right? Depending on which layer you're in. And it just kind of drives me crazy. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe that's know.
0: a sign that you need to, and that's where I said this validation object kind of thing comes into it where you want to consolidate all of those checks. Um, yeah. No, I think that's And at that's least fair. that you've got one place to do it and then you can just defer to that. But what that looks like and how, you know, I assume you could just new up a validation, you know, you can, you can new up the validator using the facade or whatever, and then run the checks through there. It's, getting the data into that object in a consistent way. And if you know that you need to have a, a user, a month, a transaction amount, you know, these are the three things, for example, that you need to validate. If you pass them into the validation object, uh, into the constructor, and then you call validate method on it, then maybe that will work. And then you could just defer to the underlying validator in Laravel to figure yeah. out, you know, all of the other stuff. Mm-hmm. And at least that way you're consolidating all your rules and all of that kind of functionality as well into one place rather than having to sprinkle the checks all through your app and then having, as you say, aborts and abort ifs and, and all that kind of stuff all over the place. So yeah, that would allow it could you'd... be one one approach.
1: Yeah, so like you'd kind of extract the validation of the business rules to a separate class and then you could use that within your um, uh, with validator, right in your form requests, and then you have the validator Mm -hmm. after, and then you could just kind of do your little validator in there, new it up, pass in the different pieces that you have, and then just let it do its check. And then you could also do the same thing in your ad transaction. If you really cared to, um, Mm. just so that your class is is tested, that one class that handles the validation is tested. And then, you know, it's kind of in a couple different places, wherever you wanted to do those, those checks. Yeah. I think I can see that. Um, I think for me the general rule that I would probably apply to this would be don't write that code until you know that it's being used. Right? So if you if you yeah. if you have a use case where add add transaction is going to be called and it's possible that it could get through without having been checked first, then then write that validation in that model method, right? But not until you do, yeah. right? This this idea that like well we're going to write stuff just in case it needs to eventually i think is a great recipe for bloat all over the place right because yeah you just get these conditional checks everywhere and it's always like in the in the concern of like well we just want to make sure and that that's fine but write mm-hmm. that test and write that code when you're actually going to be utilizing it you know what i mean
0: yeah yeah i think i think that makes perfect sense
1: yeah yeah so anyway I let it slide this time and I'm a little bit mm, I'm not sure it's one of those you just have to be
0: careful if you say it again
1: yeah it's one of those apps where it's like um it's not throwaway, but it's not like the end of the world it's not mission critical mm-hmm. at all and it's not mm-hmm. really it's it's maybe worth a discussion but uh one of the things yeah. I'm reminded of Jocko Willink he says like it's not what you hmm, what does he say It's not what you, ex. what does he say? Dang it. How does he say it? Basically people will do the, the line in the sand for what people will do is whatever you tolerate. It's not what you preach. It's what you tolerate. Right. So like, that's why it's a little bit like, "Mm, should I go back and say something? And I probably won't for this time, but like, if you see it again and you let it slide again, then it's like, well, this has happened a couple of times and you've never said anything about it. So why are you bringing it back up to me now? Like I've, I've already done this twice. Like I'm just doing it the third time. Why is it a problem all of a sudden now? Is this something? Yeah, that's right. Other than like an architectural decision, like is this is personal. Like I don't understand why this is a problem. Yeah. So, like whatever whatever you tolerate will continue. Essentially, correct. You got it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It becomes the de facto like standard norm. That's what everybody kind of like. It's the lowest common denominator, right?
0: Yeah. Jocko Willink. It's not what you preach. It's what you tolerate.
1: There we go. Yep. I was close. That
0: was close. Nice. Hey, speaking of I, winding back, probably about two or three minutes now. You were talking about how tests are your saving grace, and we're going to use this as a segue into some controversy about me using types and let's into talking about then ping me. Yeah,
1: let's um, hear it.
0: And so, so essentially, what I was doing the other day is I was refactoring the Laravel package that. That is responsible, you know, that gets installed into the client applications, and then and then it's used to then ping back to the service in order to say, "Hey, this test is uh, this uh, schedule task is run." Now, as part of that, with with my packages, I tend to put in the the, the type hints and the return types and and all that kind of stuff because whilst whilst people seem to whilst it may be misconstrued that I have this. Ironclad disdain for types. I think, I think they certainly have their place, and and in packages and in places where it's to be consumed downstream by people that you know don't know what you were thinking when you wrote it and all that kind of stuff. And and for better or worse, for making IDEs, seeing and things like that. Yep. Which is in handy. packages, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. In in packages, I think totally makes sense. So as part of the work that I was doing to refactor a few bits and pieces, I thought I would. Throw in a uh, a nullable type hint for a for an integer, so it was like question mark int, no question mark ball. Something equals null, um, and then off I went. And I, because I hadn't refactored the actual code yet, I was passing an integer into that. So uh, this was for grace period. So previously, um it was like a true false on there and then it was changing to an integer so you'd pass mm-hmm. it passed a number of seconds or whatever yeah sure so i i was i was moving from one to the other and
1: from a boolean to an I integer was, uh, to be clear
0: from a boolean to an integer okay. yeah so i hadn't yet updated the code to do the next thing right it was still um it was still passing in the boolean but the I, and I was expecting for when I ran the test for the whole thing to go poof because I was passing an integer where I was supposed to be passing a Boolean or a Boolean where I was supposed to be. I'm confused. Everyone's confused now. I was passing a Boolean where I was now supposed to be passing an integer. And I thought, well, the type system was supposed to pick that up, right? Um, and I thought maybe it's because I haven't put the um, declare strict types equals one or whatever it is that's into the top of the file. So I put that in there and lo and behold, the test still, like the, <laughs> there was still no explosion from the types. I'm like, I, I know I don't like them, but surely it can't be this hard to get it to work. That it, if I say that it should be an int and I'm giving it a Boolean, it should not work. It should right. just flat sure, out should, blow yeah. up. Yep, yep. As it turns out, PHP's type system, because of the way that it has been implemented... If you don't in the, in the calling function or in the calling code, if you don't also specify that that needs to declare strict types equal true, then PHP will coerce whatever you're sending into whatever the the type hinted method is expecting, and you'll never be the wiser.
1: So in this case, a true so, would go to a one, and the false will go to a zero, and it coerces it into correct. an integer, and then it says, "Oh, we're still good."
0: Uh, and then, and then it's all good and then I'm I'm expecting it to be you know 30 seconds but it's coming back as one second so the the test was failing but not in the way that I had expected right, not it because to. Of the and type. As soon right and so as soon as I I set the and it, this was a bit of back and forth and I you know I asked cash money and asked a few other other people in another uh slack channel that I'm that, you know PHP channel that I'm in you know what's going on and and eventually I figured it out I thought well it kind of defeats the purpose. If and, and and I know it's been implemented that way on purpose, so that you know you still get the benefits of the dynamic thing. But if I say I don't think the calling code or the calling class or whatever should be responsible for telling the method that it's calling that, hey, I'm strict. If if I'm calling a thing that is declared as strict and says I require an integer, then it should be an integer no matter what is happening in the in the calling code. So Luckily, I still had the test to back me up there because the test eventually told me once I figured that out that it was all wrong.
1: So, so did you um, try declaring like type strict on the uh, on the like PHP unit tests that you were that you were doing it on and see if it failed then?
0: Yeah, so that was how I eventually figured out that that's what I needed to do that yeah. the, the, the test had to be um, declared strict as well. And, and then it blew <sighs> up for you. Did it blow up? And then? and then it blew up, but but then it blew up um first because of the type and then because the test failed right. so the the test was protecting me the whole time right sure whilst the the types only protected me once i put in this dorky hack that has to be added to every file. every file
1: so, jeez can you declare that in php unit can you say in your php unit.xml like declare strict or something no because this is part of php, PHP. in order yeah.
0: for the, in order for the, the strict typing to be enforced, you need to put this and you have to remember to put this at the top of every file. Now, if you're using, you know, snippets or whatever, every time you new up a new class, it will just pop it in there for you. It's fine.
1: But I wonder if that's how everybody else. Like, so the people who are real type evangelists, maybe, I don't know. Like, I wonder, if Freak, does he use that at the top of every single one of his classes? I yeah, can imagine I, he I does. I suppose so. Does he? All right. I don't know. Let's have a look. We can have a
0: look. We can have a look. Let's just have a quick poke. I mean, you know, not not that it matters. Um, You know, maybe I was just doing something wrong and I'm sure someone pointed out. I mean, I, it doesn't. I don't think they do. No, it doesn't look like they do use. So they're using the, you know, type hints and return types and things like that, but they're not doing it using the declare strict. So...
1: And to be fair, like in this case, the only reason that it worked is because true can be coerced into a integer. Right and false can be coerced yeah. into an integer. Yeah. So, so if you were, were I was passing expecting... in a string, I don't know. Could it, I mean if you were passing in a string, would it have sent it to a one? I can't imagine it would have. No, because the string would have still been coerced into an integer anyway. It would have. Do you think so?
0: Well, it, well, the string. Like if you have the literal if, yeah, string, so like, string, do, uh, and you cast well. it to an integer, it becomes it becomes one.
1: So if I say, well. if I say int. And then I say, hey, yeah, I get zero. Mm. So it would still be an integer. It still would work. Yeah, it would still, geez, that sucks. (laughs) It's like any of these primitive types. Like, so if I pass an array, what happens? Yeah, I get zero. Wow, that's sucks. So it, it was, that's pretty it was horrible. Still getting, <laughs> it word. was still
0: getting an integer at the end of the day. And so it was satisfying the contract of the of the method that hey, yeah. I need an integer and you're giving me an integer. So happy days. So um I defer to my default position of always have tests, it'll save you when the type hints fail. Yeah.
1: So to be that's honest, that's not with to you... say
0: I'm look, I'm gonna continue to use them yeah. and, and the code that you've been reviewing that I've been writing for the SAS, I've put the type hints in there as well largely for your id benefit
1: and honestly largely also because it's really i mean here's the deal it's really nice to be able to follow around oh this is the exact class like this is exactly Mm -hmm. where we are right here i can see this and this is what's being passed through and all that and i don't know it is really nice and the, the nice thing is like so um I don't know. Like, I feel like the type system failed here. Like, that sucks. Like, that's Mm. really, really unfortunate. However, I will say, typically, I don't usually, I don't usually use the type hint stuff to catch these sorts of. I don't know. It sounds so hypocritical, though. Like, I don't. I'm not. No, I I totally get that. You know what I
0: mean? I I do the exact same thing. I'm not using the types to catch that. I was putting the types in there so that it made it clear. And now that I've finally. Got around to installing. There's a. I'll link it in the show notes. There's a a plugin for Vim called coc. It's coc. It Vim, and it essentially hooks into the language okay. the language server. No, not code of conduct. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. Coc. It's an IntelliSense engine for Vim, so it it uses the um. It's it's conquer of completion is what CSE stands for. And it hooks into the language server that, you know, VS Code uses and all of that in order to provide um, intelligence into coding. So I do get code completion now and all that kind of stuff. And I'm still getting used to how, because if the thing pops up, it doesn't automatically pre-select the first option, which is often the correct option. So if I like type, type, type and just hit tab, it just puts a tab in instead of selecting the first thing and, and, and filling it in. So, you know, it's working It's working nicely. I, I, I still, I think it's a tolerable level because I know that we've spoken about in PHP Unit and VS Code, they've all got pop-ups and tooltips and all this cruft in the applica- in the UI that just pops up all over the place, which it just annoys me. Like it just gets in my way. I just want to write code. I don't want to see things popping up. And, and a lot of the times, I don't know if it, it happens in VS Code as well, but it certainly does in, in Vim with this plugin if i type like some class and it brings up the the auto completion and then it shows you this this expects a dollar model you know a, a model dollar model a string dollar key or whatever by the time i type the first parameter of model and then hit comma the rest of the 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 hint goes away so i don't actually see the rest of the parameters anymore yeah so i don't know if that's that's specific to the implementation in vim or not but that's just something that i've been experiencing um, and look, I'll get over it.
1: Yeah. No, I've um, I've I am a full on PHP stormtrooper now. Um, I think that was coined by David Hempel, PHP stormtrooper. Yep. I'll give it to him. Yep, I think it is. And um, yeah, I'm I'm full on that train, and I really enjoy it. And I hear what you're saying about like all the all the pop ups and the IDEs, and there is some stuff that is annoying to me um mm-hmm. like like i get these squiggly lines underneath stuff sometimes if like the spelling yeah. is not recognized it's like oh. the spelling's not right yeah so i like it and is in that case it's I'll kind of like handy because it it'll give me the
0: yeah it's it's kind of handy because it'll give me the highlight like it puts a line under a class if i forget to import Use, yeah, it yeah which exactly. is always handy correct if i forget because that's handy because that saves me closing the file, running my tests. Exactly. Oh, whoops, forgot to import that thing. Go back 100%. in there. Mm-hmm. Then I can see it. It's now just a matter of recognizing what that is because I kind of see it and it doesn't register just yet that it means that I forgot to import it. So we're getting there. It's yeah. uh, it, It's been nice.
1: Yeah. And um, so like it does that for me. Uh The other thing i was going to say like i love that it pushes in for me sometimes a lot a lot of times uh, i'll forget like argument orders and i like to be able to like you know pop up like what's the list you know what's the list of arguments i need to be able to put in here and what are the types it's expecting and all that and um Mm -hmm. yeah there's some really really nice stuff uh with php unit as well then it just kind of becomes like configuring you know oh also the other day i got a deprecated method that we were using that my IDE told me, oh, this method is deprecated. I was like, oh, cool. Mm-hmm. And then I just clicked into it and I was like, use this one. instead. perfect. I just replaced it. And done. All done. Yeah. Um, that kind of stuff is handy. Yeah, it is. It is. And this stuff you wouldn't otherwise catch if you didn't have something kind of looking mm. at those things for you. So For sure. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, cool. So um, do we want to kind of talk a little bit about what we're working on with Ping Me stuff?
0: We can talk about that right after we talk about our show sponsor, Fathom Analytics by... Jack Ellis and Paul Jarvis is a simple analytics platform for bloggers and businesses. You can stop scrolling through pages of reports and collecting gobs of personal data about your visitors. Neither of which you need most of the time. Fathom is a simple and private website analytics platform that lets you focus on what is important. And that is your business. You get one screen in real time of all of your analytics data. There are no cookie notices required because no cookies are set because no data is tracked. So the platform is GDPR compliant. You can track unlimited websites in your account and you are instantly ready for huge spikes because Jack Ellis, who wrote this thing, uh, did it all using Laravel and it's all deployed on Laravel Vapor. Fathom has been featured on Fast Company, GitHub, Product Hunt and Hack and Use for being a simple and easy to use alternative to Google Analytics. Now, normally Fathom Analytics starts at $14 per month, but if you head to usefathom.com forward slash north, you will get a seven-day trial and a $20 credit off your first invoice. So you actually get a month and a half or so for free by using usefathom.com forward slash north. Don't forget also that Jack Ellis has now actually launched his serverless Laravel course, so you should definitely check that out as well if you're interested in all things serverless and Laravel and Laravel Vapor. We'll have links to that in the show notes as well.
1: I've been hearing really good things about that course too. Lots of people who are really smart people have been saying really good things about that course. Um, and yeah. he's also got some interesting trick on there about how you can get $300 in free AWS credits. Free credit, yeah. So yeah. somebody messaged him back and was like, hey, I just, you know, basically, paid for the course by getting free credits from amazon which i would have been using anyway mm-hmm. um and then there was actually a twitter thread out there a couple days ago about how you could save even more and get even more free credits from amazon and from stripe and from mm-hmm. a couple other things that support startups so um thought yeah. that was pretty cool so yeah definitely jack alice's course looks awesome hey we are so yeah. happy to be partnering with these guys though we would really really appreciate it if you would go give them a try uh sign up for that seven day free trial And use that $20 credit. That would be awesome. I think we had our Mm -hmm. very first confirmed sign up from our link, which we were really excited about. Um, And I asked, can we know who? And he said, well, that's against our privacy policy because I don't share anything. Of course. It's all anonymized, right? And I was actually looking at this too. And they have this uh, data policy on their uh, website, usefathom.com slash data. And they actually like, truly anonymize visitors through complex hashes that makes it impossible to track unique visits uh, at all so they can't really do that like so it's kind of like when you store a password in a one-way hash right so that you can only figure out if it's the correct thing by providing the original value you know what i mean like in your database Mm -hmm. you store it in the hash yeah yeah beautiful right they're they're actually truly anonymizing visitors so uh, this is this is the real deal. They are they're very serious about this. And I know, Paul actually the other day as well said that he removed his tracking pixel from all of his emails. Um, DHH was talking about this too the other day. He's getting some serious DHH love these days because uh, DHH is on this war band like this. You know, he's he is like yeah, privacy, Mr. Privacy right now. And so he's gone off the deep end. <laughs> he has, he has, and so Fathom Analytics is uh, definitely benefiting from this because they are on that train as well. And uh, mm-hmm. we love it. We love it. Cool. Hey, just on that, when this and this episode comes
0: out tomorrow, it will be the last chance to get in on the launch window for the Serverless Laravel course. It'll be your last opportunity to save $100 off the ticket price. So be sure to check that out as well at serverlesslaravelcourse.com.
1: Very cool. Okay, so... um. Yeah, we had a couple things that we've been working on. Um, and I just want to say that I have been in love with Notion. You, I think, are the first one who brought that up to me. Notion. And I mm-hmm. use it for everything now. Literally. I just yeah. love it. It's so great. Uh organizes all of my stuff for me. And it's so... Oh man, I don't know. It's just like effortless. I feel like everything I want to yeah. do in it has, and it's, it's just, just there. It's yeah. Beautiful. It's usable. It's, I can share the pages publicly. Oh my word. That's amazing. So tailwind is doing this This uh, tailwind UI is doing this for all their documentation right now as well. I think so You're just using a publicly shared notion page. I know Sissy is doing that as well. Um, and it's like, why not? I mean, they actually look pretty dang decent to be real honest. And mm-hmm. the authoring experience is awesome. Um, and it's real-time updates, too. So I did this at uh, yeah. LayerCon Online. I just shared some of the notes that I was taking on Twitter and just said, hey, here's a note for my Notion pages that I'm writing up. If you care to follow along, go for it. And uh, a couple people <laughs> did. So pretty cool. Really liking huh. it. But I'm writing up all the notes that we've kind of made in our discussions um, in here. So kind of uh, what I'm interested in talking about a little bit here is what the strategy that we're going to use is to move things from one status to another. And uh, yes, state machines. Yes, sure. Fine. Whatever. Uh, but even more than that. So what we've kind of outlined here is that we have three different layers. We have the project, this task and the execution, right? And what ends up happening is it's just really like this parent child relationship where child events end up almost like bubbling up and affecting parent state. So everything um, the project is the very top level. Then you have the task and then you have the execution. So, um, the task is really the, typically the, the level of granularity that people are going to be viewing this at. They're going to go to the project, but then they're going to want to see all the tasks that are kind of running and what's the current status. Are those tasks healthy? Are they, um, you know, are they running? Where are they? At? like that's, that's the whole point of this thing is like, we want to make sure our tasks yeah. are running. Right. But in addition to the tasks, the one layer underneath them is execution. And typically what's going to happen is is the thing that's going to update the status of these tasks is going to happen at the task level um, in the case that we're checking for a missing task. But outside of that, it's going to happen at the execution level. The execution uh, itself is going to be the thing that's going to cause the status of the task to update. So let me explain that Mm -hmm. real quick. So every minute we're going to check for missing tasks and anything that is um, kind of over the time that it's supposed to next run uh, will be marked as missing, right? So that task we marked as missing will alert the user hey, this didn't, this didn't, you know, get checked in. It's missing. Okay. So that's the task. That's it. That's the only time the task updates itself to be going from healthy or passing or whatever we're calling it to missing. That's it. Mm-hmm. Just that check for missing yep. tasks. Outside of that, everything depends on the execution. So if the execution has fired, right, it's not going to be missing the execution has checked in at all. If it has started, that task will be moved from passing to running, right? It's now running. There's an execution in place. It's running. And then that execution has a couple different things that could possibly happen to it. It's either going to send a finished event, at which case that execution will be marked as finished and that task will be marked as passing. There you go. All done. If that execution fails to finish, fails to send a finished event, we at this point now have this check for missing executions. This is another job that runs every minute and what it does is it looks for any executions that have been started but have not yet finished and are outside of the window of time that we are allowing this execution to run for. If that execution runs for too long, it goes to failed because it means it started but it never finished, which means it failed. That's what happened, right? So if that fails, then the task status goes to uh, not missing at this point, but now failed, right? So that's kind of the flow that we have. And really what it is uh, kind of like is um, these nested states, if you will, right? So you have a state that the task can be in, and then you have these uh, child states that the execution can be in that that will affect the parent. So it may sound somewhat trivial, but if you think about it for longer than like a couple minutes this stuff actually becomes it can get quite complicated depending on how things are checking in how things are um if it's started but hasn't yet finished and the task is in which state does the task still need to check for missing tasks does it not Um, all these different pieces and it, it really is dependent on one column on each of these which is the status column right and that's where obviously this big drum that i've been banging for forever uh, makes this stuff really reliable and really helpful, which is uh, state state machines. Um, yeah, and being able to model them with those. So that's kind of the next big thing that I'm working on. You've really nailed down kind of how we're tracking task executions um, using some of the secret sauce with uh, these different. Um, I'm trying to remember what the what the actual word is that the mutex fingerprint right? the, the fingerprint. fingerprint yeah you're fingerprinting each one of these tasks. Uh, in each one of these executions that belong to these tasks. So now we've got that nailed down. Mm-hmm. Now it's on to me to write the state machines and uh, really kind of the to chart it all out, how this is gonna work. So we've got a pretty good document here for how that's gonna work. Um, and I'm really kind of happy with what we came up with. I think it's gonna give a good level of granularity without going like whole hog. Cause the next thing after this, if this doesn't work, we are going to event sourcing. That's That's really like <laughs> the next thing, honestly. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not like against it. It just is a little bit scary to me. Event sourcing is. I'm not sure why. Yeah. It just is. Do you know what? Do you know what I would suggest? Just in case we do have to go down the
0: event sourcing path. Hit me. Is that every time you change the status of of a of a model or a or a you know of a task or execution or whatever. Yep. Is I would fire an event anyway. Like, just fire an event. You don't have to register any listeners for it, but just fire the events. Yeah, sure. Because it'll save you from having to double back and do it later and find all the places. Yeah. And that way you can just put the test in there now using the event fake that, you know, event fake. Absolutely. Was, well, that's a know, great idea. event was, uh, assert was sent or whatever it is, assert dispatched, Um, task went missing or task completed or whatever. Like, if we're putting all of that stuff in now, then, if we have to change it later, then there's no problem. And the fact that we're not storing those events doesn't matter. Right? We could hook into those events for storage or for logging or whatever, um, separate to having to, to you know store the the data in those events. So sure, no, I think, I think it'd that's be worth worth worthwhile doing it anyway.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree. No, I think that's a great way to do it actually. Um, so here's the other thing, right? It's like we're sort of doing this in an app that we just. Recently, we're we're writing as well, Um, but there's what we're doing essentially is we're doing this mini version of event sourcing, which is in the... So like, for example, in our execution, what we would have is we'd have like a data column or a history column or something like that. And what it would do is it would just keep track of the statuses that it's been in. So whenever the status changes, we just write a record that says new status. As of this time, it's now this status, right? So it starts Mm -hmm. out, every execution starts out in the status of running, right? So it's running. And then if it goes through check for missing executions and it it fails, right? It stops. Uh, it doesn't ever check back in. It goes to a failed status, right? And we could say failed at this time. And then if it ends up checking in after that time, right? Because that can happen, right? That could happen, right? It maybe yeah. took We timed it out after five minutes and it took 20 minutes to run, but it did actually check in after that. So now it goes from a failed mm-hmm. status to actually a passing status, right? It would be nice to be able to see instead of just looking at the database and saying, oh, looks like it's passing. Well, yes, it was passing, but at one point it actually failed, right? And you kind of need to have a record of that. So really what I'm talking about right now is event sourcing. It's just not full on event sourcing. It's just kind of like Mm -hmm. more of a uh, historical record. And we can do that without doing full on event sourcing. Um, yeah. The thing that about event for sourcing that I think confuses me and scares me a little bit is like it seems like you have to reassemble the world every time you get to a page. It seems like you have to take all the events and kind of run them through. No? Because you have this aggregate no, 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 that, no, you're, no. that you're storing in the database?
0: Well, no. When you're viewing a page, you're seeing that resource at the current point in time. The whole point of tracking the events historically is to be able to replay things or to say hey now we want to be able to do this thing and so you go and you replay all of the events from day whatever until now and as if that thing had been there before and then you've got the the state at each of those points in time to be able to reconstruct the model up to now so for example
1: what do they call it projections right they call it a projection yeah
0: I'm not not going to pretend to know what the terminology is. I'm just going to talk very loosely about the theory. (laughs) So, for example, if I had a customer that signed up a year ago and I said customer signed up and then three months after that, they changed plan and then I said customer changed plan and then um, three months after that, they changed plan again and then 3 months after that some other event happened right so that's let's say that's 12 months now let's say we wanted to send an event to let's let's say we decided to start using bear metrics and we wanted to see historically when that customer had changed plans and how that affected mrr so we would go back to the start, you know, the beginning of time as we know it, to when that customer signed up, and we would use the the events that we've stored for those plan changes to send an event to Bear Metrics to say, on this date, the customer changed from the fifty dollar plan to the sixty dollar plan, and then they changed from the sixty dollar plan to the seventy dollar plan, and then they changed from the seventy dollar plan all the way back down to the fifty dollar plan. Now, twelve months ago, I didn't know that I wanted that information. But because I was dispatching the events and I was storing them, you know, I had them in the event store. I can go back and say, right, well, this is what has to happen when that event is fired and off off it goes. So I can retrospectively figure out what my MRI was by, by shoving it, you know, by punting that into bare metrics from when that customer first joined until now. And you do that for every customer. And replaying all these projections can take time depending on what you're doing you know, sending HTTP requests to bare metrics is going to take some time. And especially if you've got thousands of customers, but the fact that you can do that is really cool retrospectively. Whereas right now we don't have any of that stuff. So if someone says to me, how many customers did we have a year ago compared to now? Well, I've got to go and write some gnarly queries that look at
1: the the service start date.
0: Yeah, luckily we have a service start date and a service end date. So I can pick a date in history and say, select count star from services where start date is not null and start date is less than or equal to today and end date is null or end date is greater than today. So I can reconstruct because I have those two dates. I know when that service started and when it ended. But to do that every time, is not great. And it's kind of slow, especially as that number of customers starts to increase over time. So what we actually started doing probably about six months ago was to start taking a daily snapshot. And we take a snapshot of a whole bunch of different metrics. We look at total number of customers, a total number of services, number of services per state, number of services per technology type, number of services per plan, number of services per plan suite, so group of plans, all that kind of stuff. So that on any point in time, I can say, given these 15 different data points, what do you want to know on any date from, you know, when we started recording 12 months ago? So, you know, those are the two kinds of approaches. Obviously, event sourcing gives you the ability to reconstruct everything. And so you're going back to the bare Metrics example. Um, you could, assuming that you stored all of those events for the last 12 months, reconstruct a history as though you were using bare metrics the whole
1: time sure right
0: but it's not as though you're reconstructing that every time you view the resource you just see the snapshot of like right now as though you weren't using event sourcing at all but Mm -hmm. event sourcing is incredibly powerful for reporting and audit and and you know being able to introduce functionality retrospectively
1: right Right. Which like in a situation like ours actually totally makes sense. So yeah, I've got a little bit of homework ahead of me. We'll see. I may, I may end up yet looking at it and be like, mm, if it's really not that much more work, I might just chuck it in there. We'll see. spacy yeah. has a really I mean, good package the, for this with events, uh, event sauce. So I don't know. We'll yeah. see.
0: At the very least I would fire the events, even if we don't do anything with them. Yes. If it's yep. not much more work to store the events, you could probably store them. Yeah. Um, Keeping in all mind, this
1: entire thing is so freaking event driven. Everything is. It's yeah. all I mean, it, it well, all is. Especially well, for in the mind like, that
0: we keep in mind that we don't track necessarily that something changed from a passing to a failing state, but we certainly track when a task started and then finished and started and finished. So we know historically when when that kind of thing is happening. So you know, we we're kind of tracking it, but not in a a we're rolling our own idea. Normalized fashion. We're rolling fashion. our own thing. Sure. Yeah, exactly. But, but where we're specifically tracking start, finished, and skipped, we're not tracking that start then it became failing. Right. Whereas in event sourcing you would say when the 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 check task runs, it would go, um, hey, this this is gone missing. It would fire an event that it's gone missing, and then something would then capture that event and write it to the, the store so that if we wanted to do something with it later we could right yep whereas right now we're just we're just tracking start finished and skip so we wouldn't be able to tell you when something started failing we would just be able to say um like we wouldn't <laughs> exactly. know that, that status happened currently right and you know it depends if if that's important to us you know do you want to see that it started here and it finished here or it started here and then it started again here but do you care that it moved into a failing state? And then how do you actually represent that? Which is the other thing. Like, how do you represent that it was in a failing state?
1: Yeah, exactly. That's the question. That is the question. Mm. And, and we don't have an answer for that right now. So because yeah. we have stuff that's going to move through, as long as everything follows the happy path, it's like, oh, great, nobody cares. Like, nobody cares that it was in a started state or in a running state, and then it went to, you know, finished. I mean, of course it did. Yeah. That's how it works. But if it went from running to failed, to finished, mm, it's a little weird.
0: Yeah, if we said that it was failing, and then it, you know, because it was it was late because there was a sudden spike, and it, it was not right. able to process that data in the in the normal amount of time. Yeah, then it would have moved to failing Here's- logically, and we would have triggered an alert for that. that exactly went to the right. user. That's exactly. But what then I'm it finished, too. and it was okay. But that that would not be presented in the, in the current model. So and that's maybe why- that's actually critical that we do.
1: That, and that's what I'm thinking through is like okay so if, and that's literally the specific example right? It goes from running to failed. We send an alert out to the user saying, "Hey, by the way, this job is failing." And they come to the the, the uh, dashboard and check it. It says, "Passing." Well, wait a second. Mm-hmm. I thought this was failing. Well, I mean, it was. Well, yeah. When and I don't see it. And how? What do you mean it was failing? It looks like everything's good. Your your application doesn't work. It's broken. What? Yeah. Well, we're getting these weird things where we're getting, you know, things that say it's failing and then it's passing. I, I don't get it. Like, yeah, then we mm-hmm. look at it and say, yeah, I don't get it either. Why would it be doing that, right? Yeah. So these are those sort of weird. Uh, unless you do so, like my solutions right now are either number one, have like a data column or something like that where we actually end up saving these tiny little events just for the purpose of having like a historical little tiny record on each execution, or we go on full full on event sourcing. Um, and maybe we could do that at, at some other point. It doesn't necessarily have to be done right now, as long as you like you said, maybe we're just firing the events right now and then we can consume them later. Okay, we're at an hour and two minutes, so we should yeah. probably wrap this up. Any final thoughts, my friend? Nothing. Thank you to our friends
0: at Fathom Analytics for sponsoring our dainty little internet program here.
1: Absolutely. Uh, You can find show notes for this episode at NorthSouth or NorthMarieSouth.audio slash 71. Hit us up on Twitter at JakeBennett, at Michael Dorinda uh, and at North South Audio. Subscribe to us. Share us with your friends. We love you all. Thanks for hanging out with us a little bit. Appreciate it. Thanks for you who joined us in the chat. Andreas, Harry, Justin, uh, all you wonderful people who come hang out with us anytime. Appreciate it. Yeah. All right, everybody. That's it for us. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Out. Bye.